The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Hey, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And what do you say? We get this last weekend of the summer started with my old friend Duff McKagan and his critically acclaimed or panned joke of the week. Hey, uh, Chris Jericho. It's Duff McKagan calling you. I'm actually, um, well... I'm heading out to Malibu, California. That's uh, my wife and I's wedding anniversary, and uh, we're going to go celebrate that. And by celebrate, you know. Anyhow, you know, this one guy said to the other guy, uh, hey, you're a virgin. And the other guy says, yeah, I was until last night. And the first guy says, well, what do you mean? How, well, who'd you do it with? And the guy says, your sister. And the first guy says, I don't have a sister. That guesses. You will in nine months. Thank you very much. I'm not sure if I get that one, but if it is what I think it is, it's pretty gross. Well, happy anniversary, anyways, to Jeff McKagan and his lovely wife, Susan. Uh, happy birthday to my lovely wife, Jessica. That was uh, yesterday. I think I'm going to skip right over that joke, though, and just say thanks to Duff for sending them in, no matter how good or truly terrible like that one are. Uh, Duff and Guns N' Roses headed to the Philippines, Jakarta, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Abu Dhabi in November. And coming up on this show today, the host that's taken over the podcast world, he's behind 83 weeks. He's behind something to wrestle with. He's behind uh, what happened when. Conrad Thompson, he's bringing his special brand of research, wrestling knowledge, and questions to help me talk about the countdown to Y2J. It's an in-depth look at the night of my WWE debut and the events leading up to it and following it. We'll talk all about the countdown clock, where that came from, the Y2J name, what the locker room was like for me when I first got to WWE, my debut promo with The Rock, the famous Rock promo, and Vince's reaction to my TV debut, the countdown to Y2J, all the events leading up to that fateful night of August 9th, 1999, coming up with Conrad Thompson, and right now, coming up now... The Judas Rising Tour is here. We are out with Adelita's Way, Stone Broken, and The Stir tonight, Friday, uh, August 31st, when Little Rock at the Revolution Music Room, uh, Saturday, uh, 9-1, uh, September 1st, uh, Kansas City, actually Miriam, Kansas, at Aftershock. And then on the 2nd, it's A Taste of Madison. We'll be there uh, right before Metallica, actually. Uh, then we do Omaha, Des Moines, Minneapolis, Fargo, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, all the shows listed at FozzyRock.com, along with all of the VIP information don't miss out on the Fozzie VIP uh, classic extravaganza. We do a mini concert for you. 
We do a meet and greet. We hang out with you. You answer, answer your questions, take some pictures, have a grand old time. All information for that, FozzyRock.com. Uh, Rock Allegiance in New Jersey, October 6th, as we continue to read off the dates here. Then we're headed to Australia, New Zealand, uh, November 7th in Auckland, 9th in Melbourne, 10th Sydney, 13 Adelaide, 14 Brisbane. The VIPs in Melbourne and Sydney are sold out. The VIPs in Miriam, Kansas are sold out as well. And then we're hooking up with Three Days Grace, uh, a few days on their Canadian tour, Moncton, Halifax, Quebec City, and Montreal. More Canadian dates to be announced uh, next week, as a matter of fact. FozzyRock.com for all ticket information, including how to buy tickets for the VIP meet and greet, all the gig information, everything you need. All right. So we will see you then, and we'll see Conrad Thompson now. All the details and questions about the countdown to Y2J, the night of my illustrious W debut, uh, August 9th, 1999. Let's get it started with Conrad now. Conrad's got a big boot on his leg, and he's standing on the court. It's your gimmick, but uh, we're here uh, in Huntsville and uh, first time meeting Conrad Thompson, the uh, brand new podcasting guru <laughs> and the uh, uh, proprietor of Starcast. Yeah, we're excited about it, man. Tell Just us a couple about days this. away. Yeah, it's uh, it's the ultimate wrestling convention, or at least that's what I'm trying to claim. It's uh, the convention partner for All In, which of course is coming up this weekend, and we've got like 40 stage shows and a ton of meet and greets, over 150 wrestlers and. Uh, you can actually join in from the comfort of your living room by ordering StarCast on Fight. And, you know, it's not as nearly as cool as a cruise, but I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, no, that's huge, though. And, and just the whole idea of it, um, you know, with All In being such a huge success. And then, like you mentioned, kind of piggybacking. Yeah, that's exactly right. Concept around it with all the guys in the live podcast and all that sort of stuff. Was everybody pretty agreeable to doing it when you? Oh yeah, them? yeah. We didn't have very much pushback. I mean, there was one rock and roll band guy I tried to get, but he was <laughs> he was busy. But, yeah, we're playing that day. Uh, yeah, but uh, no, it was great, man. It, it's a fun opportunity to do like the roast of Bruce Pritchard. So I've got a couple of guys I'm holding in my back pocket that I don't want to announce yet because I'm afraid that somebody might cancel their booking. Yeah. Um, but still, I've got a bunch of professional comedians there and a. Bunch bunch of old wrestlers and it'll be fun to sort of just sort of parody what we see on comedy central except with bruce pritchard who's a willing subject and the all-in weigh-ins and lots of fun stuff that's really cool so they're doing weigh-ins yeah well. we're gonna do like a ufc style boxing style weigh-ins and press conference you know it's gonna add a big fight feel especially for the nwa world title with nick and cody so it should be fun what do you think right now about all this stuff about the business? You're a longtime wrestling fan, and you're really involved with, you know, you did Ric Flair's podcast, right. and you do Tony Schiavone and Bruce Pritchard and, and Eric Bischoff. As a, as a wrestling fan, I know you're kind of in the business, but take yourself out of that. How do you feel ab about how things are right now in the state of the business? Today? Well, I'm just a fan, but there's never been a better time. You know, even just from an access standpoint, you think about like when I was a kid and Earthquake squashed Hulk Hogan, you had to like write a letter and then you got a form letter back. You can send Hulk Hogan a tweet now. <laughs> you know, the, the access that you have now and the idea that you guys get to communicate with us fans directly through the podcast and there's no filter. It's not like somebody handed you a script and you've got 90 seconds and that's all we hear from you. There's more access and we feel more included than ever before. And the podcasts like this are the reason. So I think that's the reason we've seen a resurgence where maybe there's not as many wrestling fans watching, but those who are are much more passionate. Much more passionate, spending a lot more money, willing yes. to travel around you know, and, and, and there's so many podcasts too 
And that's why it's 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 very cool that you have such successful ones because what do you do that's different? Right. You know, and the whole concept of uh, like my show is always guest based. Sure. Other ones are more you know Conan shows more of like a like a magazine type of a thing, right? A morning show. Yeah. Yours, I think, is a great idea of taking a guy who's been through the the ringer like Bruce or Eric, and just have them talk about a certain episode of Nitro or a certain pay per view or a certain guy. Where did that idea come from? Well, the pressure of doing what you're doing, you know, just logistically, you've got to find 52 different guests a year right. and you've got to hope that they're interesting or entertaining. And so that was my first podcast with Bru with uh, Rick. We had a lot of guests, but those guests really determined how many downloads we had. And I learned very quickly that in the podcast game, you make money based on downloads. So we would get what we thought were really big guests like Dana White. And downloads would die. And I didn't really get that. And then we would get Lawrence Taylor. Downloads die. Darius Rucker. No one cared. And so that's when I realized, you know what? This is, um, there's got to be a better way where there's less stress and pressure of, if I don't have a good guess, my downloads are going to be down. So I thought, well, as a salesman, because that's what I do by day, I sell mortgages. The best way to sell it is to just ask them, hey, what do you want? So we started running polls and we let the fans decide. And then it feels like, hey, you're in control. And as a fan, that's what we want. Like, why are they doing this on Monday night? They should be doing that. Well, if we can just do that, then we're going to be successful. And that concept has worked for us. It really has. And like I said, it's fun to listen to. I really enjoy both the shows. And Eric's is probably more fun for you because I was there at that time. Right. You know, Bruce, we crossed paths briefly, but only maybe three, four years. But with the whole Bischoff time frame of the whole Nitro. And that's what led us to do, you know, when you guys did the show about me. Right. And then to do the rebuttal of that show did great talk about downloads. I think it's my second biggest show. And we only put it out two months ago. And, and what's great about that to me is people will hear that and say, oh, well, that's the Conrad dust. No, it's not. People are listening to the Chris Jericho show because they want to hear about Chris Jericho. Well, yeah, I wasn't thinking the Conrad Well, dust. but everybody online is <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's great because it's they think I have some magic formula. No, it's not that. It's a matter of, hey, what do they want? And your audience really wants to hear your story. And so when you pitched, hey, you want to come talk about my WWF debut? Hell well, that's yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah. And like you said, you're a great interviewer because uh, you, you really do go deep. And it was fun to do the WCW one because, right. yes, I've written books on the subject, but to really sit back and think about it and go into it was, was very cool for me. And like you said, a lot of my fans and people that listen to the show really got into that. So this month, August 9th, was the 19-year anniversary of the debut of Y2J. So um, I thought about, well, maybe I should do like a little reminiscing on that. And then I thought, why don't I call Conrad and we can do it? Because people <laughs> want you to do all eras of my career. So sure, why not? We've got a long way to go for that. But I thought it'd be a great idea to do it. And here we are in Huntsville, where you live. So why not? Let's do uh, let's do it. The the debut of Y two J. Um, however you want to handle it, and however you want to go about it. Well, I think it's kind of fun that it happened in Chicago, Illinois, especially considering we started this conversation talking about All In That's right. just a couple of days yeah, from right, now. Yeah. But I guess we should first, before we talk about you debuting, we should talk about how things ended for you. Um, I mean, you, you first debuted in WCW August of 96, and then you're wrapping it up in July of 99. August and uh, Chris Jericho kind of synonymous huh, with both big companies. Well, it was a three-year deal that I had right. with WCW, right? So, yeah, that, that went out in August. And I think, like you mentioned, July of 99. But I think my last match period in WCW was in about May or so. We talked about that back in, in, in the WCW podcast. So Bischoff took me off TV. And I still worked house shows for, for a time being. 
but I think my last show might have been in Peoria, uh, Illinois, and it was a tag match with me and somebody versus Kidman and Rey Mysterio. And I remember I grabbed the mic and I said, you know, if I lose this match, I'm going to quit WCW and you're never going to see me again. And I remember Mysterio grabbed the microphone and said, everyone knows that your contract's done. And I was like, <laughs> you just spoiled the gimmick of the match, dummy. That's hilarious. You know, yeah. And then we went to Big Al's uh, strip club after. And I, uh, I think I ended the night by throwing a piece of pizza at a cop. Uh, who did not arrest me, but uh, took me in the back of his car and told me to calm down, Chris. So that was my last show in WCW. And then I had a couple months off. That's actually, incidentally, where, where we started Fozzie was in that time frame. Wow. Um, and uh, that was the end of it. And I had basically just rode the contract out, which I believe ended, you know, like you said, end of July, mid-July. And then August 9th uh, is when, when the debut happened. You wrote in your book, my desire to go to the WWF only got stronger when I went backstage to the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view in Calgary. And that would have been in July of 97. You wrote, I walked around the building until I ran into Vince McMahon himself. He stood broad-shouldered and imposing like Goliath in an immaculate suit, not a hair out of place. His do was so perfect, I wondered if it was a toupee. He was the most intimidating individual I'd ever met. And this was the man who had engineered the entire wrestling boom. And I was standing before him. How do you like my town? I asked, continuing the tradition of saying stupid things upon first meeting. And he looked at me sternly and says, I like it just fine and turned away. The man I dreamed of working for my whole life had just jobbed me out. <laughs> so tell me about that chance meeting with maybe not so chance. You were looking to meet him. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I believe I'd met him at one point before. And like, you know, we crossed paths at a hotel in Pittsburgh or something like that. But um, yeah, I was in Calgary. I was living in Calgary. And it's one of the greatest matches in WWE history, which, is, of course, was the 10-man tag with the Hart Foundation. Uh, and incidentally, four out of those five guys have passed away since then. Uh, Brett being the sole survivor, but um, the, the crowd was insane. It was just one of the greatest nights for wrestling and a pay-per-view and all that sort of stuff. And I went there to see the show, and I remember I got a little bit of a, of a blowback from Bischoff because he heard that I was there. I was like, you know, what are you doing there at the, you know, the enemy lines? And to me, it wasn't enemy lines. It was a huge show in Calgary. And yeah, I went there to say hi to some people and I was very coldly met by the locker room or X-Pac. Really? Yeah. Uh, I know it was uh, triple H and a couple other people weren't very nice. <laughs> they, they, they considered you an enemy. Yeah. Like, yeah. What's this guy doing here sort of thing. And then, yeah, I introduced myself to Vince who had no idea who I was. And I think I, he's like, who's this guy coming to talk to me out of nowhere. Right. Cause I probably went up to mid conversation when he was talking to somebody else <laughs> about the angle for the show or whatever it must be. Um, but I just remember like, like I felt so out of place, but so jealous cause I wanted to be there. You know, I really wanted to work WWE. And like I mentioned in our last podcast, that's all I ever wanted to do. Cause I didn't grow up with WCW. I didn't grow up in Huntsville or Atlanta. I grew up in Winnipeg and it was all AWA turning into WWE. And that's kind of, you know, where it started for me to want to work there. And then actually being in the realm of, 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 of w, uh, WWF, and I remember I saw makeup ladies. Helen Hart was getting makeup put on. And I was like, wow, they even have makeup artists here? Like, this is this is like Hollywood, man. You know, so just to see that was a whole different vibe of what WCW was. So tell me about, you know, because you'd been a wrestling fan for a long time. When, when was the last time you went to a WWF show? Because coming from a traditional WCW show, and you guys had hot crowds in 97, but that's maybe the rowdiest crowd ever. That's that show. And so if you hadn't been in a while... 
you had to feel like, damn, is this what it's like every week? Well, you know, once again, it was Calgary. It was the hometown guys. Um, And at the time, Calgary was a great wrestling town. It's really not anymore. It's kind of sad. It's really gone downhill. But I hadn't gone to a, a WWF show probably since 1989. I didn't go once I got in the business. I was never one of those guys to go hang around backstage and try and get a job. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be an enhancement guy. I didn't want to be a guy that was, you know, trying to show his face. But the Calgary show was different because it just, I wanted to see it. I wanted to be a part of it, you know. And um, so I hadn't gone. And to see the crowd as crazy as they were, and still remembering it to this day. I mean, I remember Austin getting let out in handcuffs and he was still giving everyone the finger behind yeah. his back. Like, it was just a, a cool vibe. It was a cool atmosphere. And, you know, WCW was cool, but for me, it was a means to an end. It was a way for me to get into WWE because, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't grow up with it. So it wasn't my wrestling. WWF was my wrestling, and that was what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. Meltzer reported in March of 98 that you guys bumped into Vince McMahon. That's uh, it, yeah. So, so tell me about that meeting when you just happened to bump into him. Do you have any sort of inclination of you know, how you want to jumpstart this? You told us this, the story before when you first went to Vince's house. But when you have that sort of bump-in meeting, do all of you guys really know at that minute, hey, we're out of here? Yeah, I remember we went to a, a hotel in Pittsburgh that everybody was staying at. It was just a, a real honest coincidence. It was right. me, Fit, probably Benoit, Eddie, Dean, those guys that I traveled with, and we just happened to pull in, and all those guys were there. And I, I legit, literally remember meeting Vince, and he was wearing like a pink plaid sports coat that looked like the pocket had been ripped off. Wow. And I don't know why. I, maybe he had worn it on TV. Maybe he was involved in some kind of an angle. Sure. But I remember seeing Vince with this jacket. He almost looked like a hobo's jacket. Like <laughs> The color was weird, and it was ripped up. And, um, and, we, and we said hi, but we talked in depth with, um, I want to say Shane Douglas, but that can't be right because it's not the right time frame that he was there. But I remember meeting Sean. He was in, uh, Sean Michaels was in the Sean bar. was there, Steve and Austin, the Steiners, Austin. Kurt Henning. Okay, and yeah. I, I remember Sean, and he was he was, uh, he was was messed up. And I remember also the costume girls were like, when are you coming to WWE? You got to come to WWE. Can you be my cabana boy? Like, they had a crush on me. Wow. And so once again, like, you, we went and kind of mingled. And, and I don't remember those other guys being there, but I vividly remember talking to Sean Michaels for a bit. Um, because he was my hero, you know, and then meeting Vince. But once again, like, you know, like I said before, I know disrespect to Eric, but Eric and Vince are two different animals. Eric was walking around with jeans and a leather jacket and his hat on backwards. And Vince, you know, is 240 pounds or whatever he was of solid muscle, broad shoulders, big chest. He's tall. He's just got that aura about him that Eric didn't have. And so to just be in his presence and see it face to face was... um, uh, was quite incredible again you told the story the last time we talked about when you went to vince's house but i'd like to go a little deeper because you wrote in your book that there was a moment where you guys were eating a brownie let's 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 share that for a lot of the listeners who maybe haven't read your book yeah i was at vince's house for the secret meeting and if you want to hear the full story go back and listen to our last podcast that we did but um they bought they bought lunch like i was in the booking meeting uh, at Vince's house under contract to WCW, which like is still, out of a movie. Yeah, it's still incredible like yeah. that they did that, you know, and it was Vince and Jr. And uh, I believe Bruce was there and I know Russo was there, Ed Ferrara, all those guys. And uh, they ordered lunch. What would you like for lunch, Chris? And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, 
I don't know. Like, was this a test? Like, am I supposed to order something? Am I not? <laughs> I think I ordered like a roast beef sandwich or something. And as uh, we were eating lunch and going over that week's script for Raw, where I was asked, what do you think of the finish of the D'Lo Brown match, Chris? And I'm like, sounds good to me. Like, what the f*** am I doing here? Right. And uh, afterwards, Vince's ma- uh, housekeeper had made brownies. So they brought brownies in for dessert. Which is very strange because Vince does not eat sweets. Yeah. You know, but he must love these brownies. And we both had a brownie. And then we both were looking at the plate for, you know, like, geez, I'd like to have another one. I remember we both were looking at the plate and looked up and locked eyes with each other and started laughing. And he's like, would you like another brownie? I know I want one. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, two gentlemen are allowed to have a second brownie. And so, yes, here we go. Eating brownies, Vince. And it was just very strange. And once again... You know, knowing Vince, uh, was it all orchestrated? Is he like, oh, that fat gate two brownies? Or, you know, <laughs> you know, he's show, what, what does that show him? But um, you know, it was it was just one of those things where I uh, it's still surreal to me to this day. And when I told you about the picture in Vince's house after the painting, the oil painting of himself, right? People, I sent it to you. People were tweeting pictures of it, I guess, from sure. an old WWE magazine or something. And it's like, I was right. I knew it was real. You know, it was there. So to see it was very cool. Everything about that picture is classic Vince McMahon. Yeah. yeah. And even I think he's wearing like Zubaz. And, and, you know, it was his knockoff Zubaz, but he had something. He had something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Kind of one of those rag shirts yeah. with no, no collar that kind of shows your chest. And it's like just seeing that. Like you said, that's classic Vince. One of the things uh, that we didn't touch on the last time we talked is during your suspension from WCW, your agent was allegedly negotiating with Jim Ross to the point that JR flew to meet you in Tampa. Yeah. Tell us about that meeting. That's true. Jim always brings it up. JR and uh, Jerry Briscoe, who lives in Tampa, uh, flew to, uh, to Tampa to meet me. We met at the Bombay Bicycle Club, which was right across the street from where I was living at the time in Clearwater. And that was kind of the, uh, the big meeting. And I believe... I had already signed, um, or I was about to, but it was I was in at that point. You, know? you, you wrote that their offer was a three-year deal for $450,000 yeah. a year with an intricate system of bonuses based on attendance and pay-per-view buys. And we've always sort of, as fans, we've heard about those, but it really feels sort of arbitrary. Like, you don't really know what... There's not like a scientific formula for, here's how you figure the payoffs, pal, right? There's not, and it's funny, when I did Dancing with the Stars... They said, you know, the, the the results were based on a combination of of people's votes and the judges' scores. And when I went to ask what exactly is that they wouldn't tell you. And that's when I started realizing that it's all a work. It's based sure. on whatever the producers want. Maybe they use, you know, 20% of the votes just to see, well, they got a lot of votes, so let's keep them on. Yeah. And I was like, this is just like WWE's pay scale. You don't know what you're going to get. If you're working on top, you think, I'm going to make big money. Sometimes you don't. I remember when I did the the pay per view where I won the undisputed championship. I thought I had two main event matches. I'm going to make a million dollars. Yeah, nothing, not even close. A shitty small little payoff, and you would have to sometimes go. I remember with Triple H, uh, WrestleMania, the main event, the last match on the show. Now we know Hogan and Rock was the main event, but sure, we were on last WWE right. Championship. And I remember just in passing, Hunter told me what he got, and it was I got one fifth of the pie. If whatever, if it was you know whatever the, the overall money for that match was, Hunter got four fifths. I got one fifth, and I I flipped out. Wow! I flipped out, and I went and had a meeting with with Jim Ross, and he took it to Vince. And to Vince's credit, Vince sent me a, a very substantial check 
over the next week. And he's done that a few times. Even in 2016, I went and spoke to him. Like, listen, man, my payoffs are shit. I'm your top heel, you know, the list and the Kevin Owens and all that stuff. And I'm making less than I did 10 years ago. And he came back with, with you know, uh, an upgrade. But if you don't say anything, then you'll never gonna... get anything. Right. And like I said, there's been some payoffs that are ridiculously bigger than I expected and some that are ridiculously embarrassing but you never know. You never know. And that's why all that matters is that guarantee that you get when you sign your contract. If a young wrestler's hearing that, how does he know when when to sort of go and speak up and when not to? Because it is very much, you know, well, you're Chris you know, Jericho, so you can get away with something where well, maybe somebody who's not tenured doesn't feel like they can. And that's the thing, Connor. You have to have tenure. Right. And you have to have the respect from the boss. And, you know, because I used to say, too, like, guys would go, yeah, yeah, we went and they gave us another five grand. I'm like, well, who's to say they're not going to just take five grand the next time. off your next pay-per-view payoff? How are you going to know? It always, it always evens out in the end. So you really have to, if you're going to go ask, it's not for five grand. You're going to ask for 100 grand or 250 grand or right. something big. Because if not, it's just nickel and diming yourself. Sure. You know, well, that makes total sense. So in the meantime, you know, after you have this $450,000 offer, WCW is trying to up their offer. And there was some debate with Eric as you guys went back and forth in our most recent episodes together. You asked for a million dollars. You say they got close. He says, that's not true. Chat me up. What do you remember about the counter? It makes me laugh when Eric says it's not true because Eric has to remember stories about how many employees were in WCW. 300? Sure. How many wrestlers? 100? So I know my story better than anybody on the planet, and it is true. They they came up and offered me a deal that, with bonuses and incentives, and you know, if if the stars align and there's a solar eclipse on a Tuesday night, I could make close to eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. But it was really based on if the house has more than ten thousand people in it, you'll get X amount of dollars. If the paper like, it was very structured that way. So it was close to a million dollars if everything went right. Right. And I think the deal he gave me was 500 or, or maybe more. So he beat it from a downside I believe he did. I but believe he did. But you just wanted to be out of there. Uh, yeah. Uh, to me, it, like I said, it didn't matter if he gave me, you know, $5 million. I just want, it was time to go. I knew it. And, and for me, it, it's never been about money. It's about, do I want to be here? I'm excited about being here. Uh, do I, do I look forward to it? And at that point in time, I wasn't looking forward to anything. And to me, it was either leave or just quit the business. And it wasn't just me because Eddie said that to me. Chris said it. Dean said it. Perry said it. All those guys. Big show. I don't want to. They killed the love of wrestling, which is something I never thought could happen. So I've always been interested because I've heard that comment before. When you say they, who do you mean? They killed the love of the, our well, love of the I business. I mean, just the whole WCW brass. I'm not going to say it's just Eric. Sure. They could just as easily be it and it would be the whole vibe and mood surrounding WCW. You know, I remember one time I went to talk about a match with Kevin Sullivan. It was me and uh, Dean versus Booker and Eddie and Booker was angry because he didn't want to be in a match with a bunch of cruiserweights. Meanwhile, I, I weighed as much as he did. He was right. four inches taller, but I was 225 pounds and Eddie Guerrero worked like a f- giant. And Dean Malenko is one of the best workers of all time cruiserweight schmoozerweight it's a good match right it's a better match than you're gonna have working with you know big boss man and big boss man was great but you know what i'm saying sure and i remember going to kevin sullivan saying you know what are we doing in this match booker doesn't want to do it and 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 kevin said why do you care about your match so much 
Nobody else cares. Why do you care? Wow. He goes, this is, a, this is a sinking ship anyways. This, this, this company is the Titanic headed toward an iceberg. And when the booker of the show asks me, why do you care about your match? Time to go. That's the answer to your question right there. Sure. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So something else that I found interesting at the time is the WWF actually announced your signing on their website a month before your contract is up with WCW. And I think that sort of gets lost in the shuffle because so many people think that the countdown was a big surprise. Uh, and I'm certainly to a lot of fans it was, but to have your, your signing announced ahead of time that had to ruffle some feathers back with WCW, right? Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that. That's why I love doing this because I don't remember that. What does Bishop say? I don't recall this. Uh, I don't, I don't recall. I, now that you mention it, I do recall it. And I remember being a little bit bummed out about it because Surprise. I wanted it to be a secret. Yeah. I think maybe the wrestling war was still going on and Vince wanted, you know, yeah, we got one, we got, we got one, we got yeah. a big one because at the time I wasn't that big. I wasn't that big in WCW. I mean, I had a great fan following cult following, but I wasn't, that's what he wanted. That's what know? he wanted. Yeah. He, he was looking for that. Change the channel. This guy's coming here. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that I remember might have even happened before the countdown started, but we never announced who the countdown was about. But they did announce on the website, yeah, that that uh, the early uh, pioneering website from the mid '90s uh, did announce it. Before we talk about the countdown, you wrote in your book that as soon as you signed, you started talking to Vince Russo all the time about how you were going to be brought in, and you sort of relayed a story that you were at the post office or somewhere and you saw the countdown of the millennium. And it is sort of weird to talk about that now because it seems sort of silly, but once upon a time, we all thought not maybe us, but a lot of people thought there was, there, there was a real scare in the sure. air about Y2K and about, you know, when the clock strikes midnight, 99 to 2000, the banking system will fail. That's and, right. All the yeah. computers would go into a glitch. And the idea for younger listeners is at the time, all the years were in two digits. So th these days, if you put in like your credit card expiration or whatever, it's four digits. But back then, it was two digits. So it's going to go from nine nine to zero zero. And supposedly the computers didn't understand what the hell that meant, and chaos ensues. There was there was people thinking it was going to be like the end of the escape, world, Escape from Los Angeles, where just all the grid goes down, and we go back to pioneer times. Sure. And I remember, dude, I was I was heavily listening to Art Bell at the time, who's a, a great. Yeah. paranormal kind of a conspiracy radio host we've, we've talked about on this show before uh, on, on talk is jericho but uh they were doomsday guys and i remember i had five thousand dollars in cash <laughs> i had a bunch of water i had yep. a bunch of tang and food canned sure. food and tang protein drinks um and that was going to be enough to sustain me until the free world got back again but yeah, and it, it was really scary. I mean, people were really freaked out. It still talks about in my household because 
my parents were watching the ball drop or whatever and i knew where the circuit breaker was so i ran <laughs> in the other room and they're like three two one and i just flipped all That's the circuits hilarious. and my power went completely black and my mom from the other room yells oh shit <laughs> thinking oh god it's happening um so yeah I, but my mom and my dad had the same thing cases of water everybody and, you know yeah. so that was it was called y2k absolutely and um I remember, you know, like you said, I was at, I used to do, because when I was in WCW and I had no steam, I was trying every, anything I could do to try and get some notoriety. I, right. I wrote a column in the magazine. Uh, and what I would do is if you sent me a self addressed stamped envelope, I would send you an autographed picture of myself. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we would sign them. So sometimes you'd get a hundred, sometimes you'd get tens or whatever it would be. And I would go to the post office and mail these. That, like right. I was just trying to get something one going. fan at a time one fan at a time grassroots and i remember standing in line at the post office and seeing countdown to the millennium and at the time it was like four months 12 days three hours six seconds five seconds four seconds and i, I was like wow that'd be a really cool way for somebody to come into the WWE as a vignette and then right. i was like shit that's a cool way for me to come into the WWE. right you know and then what if i was the millennium man countdown to the millennium I and mean, millennium man is a pretty standard line you know everyone is familiar with it what if i'm the millennium man and that's when i kind of started thinking like coming to to, to reboot the WWE and change the WWE and make it exciting again uh, the millennium man chris jericho so that was the the idea and i called vince russo and told him about this clock idea and about the millennium man and he promised to pitch Vince that same day, and he called you back a day later and said, not only did Vince love the idea, but he's going to calibrate the clock to start a month before your debut, and of course, it's going to finally count down August 9th. Yeah, finally count down on August 9th, and, uh, and, and uh, to me, that was the coolest part of the whole thing, because when I was a kid, I loved seeing the vignettes. For the new wrestlers, you know, I remember right. like whether it was Bam Bam Bigelow or you know the Skinner or you know the British Bulldogs or whoever it was, those vignettes just captured my imagination and and to know that, wow, I got this really cool, basically a vignette and no one's sure. gonna know and it's the countdown clock and, um, and I remember asking Russo like what, what should I wear like you know and he's like <laughs> like what what a Millennium Man wear like is it a space suit or he's like well wear like. I remember he was like saying like futuristic colors or something like it has to be gold and silver because that signifies the like future. shimmery thing, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So I had some tights made with gold and silver on it. You know, basically it was just normal tights. And then I also, this goes to show just how kind of intimidated I was to go to the WWE. I went to uh, a cobbler um, and got him to make lifts for the inside of my boots. So when I so you didn't have on, those in WCW. I did not. Okay. And I, I remember they were made kind of like wood, and they were super uncomfortable. And it was weird, like like to be an extra inch taller. It just didn't fit. And I think I wore them once or twice, and then I took them out. And I remember somebody made a comment like, "Oh yeah, Jericho wears lifts in his boots." And it's like, I did twice. Right. And then I didn't. But to this day, people still would say, oh, Jericho wore lifts in his boots. And, and I remember, like, it just, once again, it's like when I wore the super tight shirt to Vince's house because I wanted right. to show Bigos. It just wasn't me, but it was the land of the Giants. Sure. You know, and at the time, coming from WCW, I wasn't big. 
Those guys were, you know, you go see a guy like Billy Gunn. That guy's deceptively huge. He's Hogan size. Exactly. And nobody talks exactly. about it. Exactly. No one talks about it. You're like yeah. the Godwins, like a, a Tex. Mark uh, Godwin is a monster. And, and so is uh, 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 Phineas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't even think twice. The guy's six foot six, six foot seven. And then Kane and Undertaker and Austin is six foot four. And Rock is six foot four. And like Hunter's six. Like all these guys were massive. Right. Um, and JBL and all, you know, uh, Ron Simmons. So to be in that locker room. I was just looking for any edge. Meanwhile, that those lifts could have really been bad for me because I was also public enemy number one when I got in that dressing room. They were looking for they a were reason. Looking for a reason, and yeah. I gave them a couple of them. You know. Well, you're probably too. You know, not to put words in your mouth, but you're probably too in the back of your mind thinking, "I don't want to be painted with this cruiserweight." At no. all, you know. So, and you're right, and that's when I when I said that, and Eric was really you know hurt by saying it was almost like being a leper. Like there was a real bad taste in people's mouths about cruiserweight and once again i was 225 freaking pounds five foot eleven same size as bret hart basically that's might, heavyweight in the ufc by the way yeah, yeah sure um and so i didn't want to go in there they didn't have a cruiserweight division anyways but i just i didn't want that to be a, 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 a you know a strike against me and of course now looking back on it, it's hilarious because you know I go to New Japan, I'm the biggest guy on the roster, you know, or, or in WWE, I'm one of the bigger guys. But it just at the time wasn't that way. Right. Well, I'm also curious about the music process. You wrote in your book a month beforehand, I flew to the WWF offices in Stanford to nail down the details of my debut. And I met with Jim Johnston, who wrote the music for all the superstars. And we spent an hour talking about who I was, what my character's attitude was. And Jim Johnson's always sort of been like the wizard of Oz. Like you hear about all these phenomenal themes that he's put together that we all identify so much with our childhood, but we don't ever hear from him. Cheap plug. We're doing behind the themes with Jim Johnson at Starcast. Nice. So he's going to bring all of his instruments and sort of that's take great. you through the creative process. And that took me five months to put together. It's the, uh, the Holy grail of the events there, but I'm curious what you can share with us from your perspective, because you obviously are musically inclined and a big fan of music. And what was that process like creating your theme music or just talking it through with Jim? Yeah, that's interesting. And we should talk more about that whole meeting because it was kind of a, I went through the whole kind of uh, the whole conveyor belt of, of Titan Towers. But Jim Johnson is definitely one of the unsung heroes of the Attitude Era and also very quiet, very, very strange, you know, as most quirky, quirky as most musical geniuses are. He was so great at finding out what the essence of the character is and nailing it in the theme song. And you look at all of those themes, Austin and Rock and Triple H and Vince and Shane and Jericho and Kurt Angle and like every Benoit, like whoever it was, it just fit. And for me, I mean, I, I went in there once again with some ideas and they were very much not 80s hair metal, but they're more rock based, more right. ACDC style stuff. You know, I used to come to the ring at the time to, to um, you know, a, a white zombie song. And then I was coming to the ring, you know, with, with those type of, of, of vibes. And then in WCW, my theme was awful. And the ripoff. The ripoff, like, sounded like a really bad Journey song, like yeah. Only the Lonely. And then it went to, like, kind of a ripoff Pearl Jam. Yeah. Because they would just use themes from the TV truck. You would use music that would... I remember mine was called Basketball Highlights Number 12. And if you watched... <laughs> If you watched TBS sports highlights, sometimes you would hear my theme song sure. in the background is like, you know, and here's Michael Jordan shooting a three pointer and be like, down, 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 down. 
Um, so Jim would sit down. I came in with kind of more uh, hard rock based. And I remember Kevin Dunn was involved in that too. And he said, we don't see you as that. We see you more contemporary. We want you to be the coolest character, the coolest entrance, you know, very uh, metropolitan. If you look at my uh, video wall, it was like a, a chick dancing and streets yes. and darkness and lights and yeah. blue and like being almost in Times Square at midnight. And that's what uh, and, and, and Jim just came up with that break the walls down, obviously based on Jericho. And it's so iconic now, if you want to call it that. It's so familiar. But at the time, I was like, wow, that's really cool because it is kind of like a glass breaking or if you smell what the rock is cooking, you'd have your intro before the song started that right. everyone would know who's coming out. Sure. And uh, that break the walls down. And then I remember thinking like, this, this almost sounds like a Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. type song who I wasn't a huge fan of, but I liked it because it was contemporary and new and i remember just saying can you put more guitars on this uh amp up the guitar because i think at first it was much more of a rap element behind it uh, maybe there's some scratching or some loops but i wanted that like put another 10 tracks of guitars on it and we got it and that's kind of where it started and that that very first song that i heard is the one that i still use to this day and i've tried to change it a few times but i remember one time vince zach wilde did a version of it black label society and vince was like no he goes your song is evergreen this is the one that we're using and it's not going to change and outside of new japan it hasn't nor will it ever if i'm in WWE, that's my theme well it works i mean it is one of those iconic themes and yeah. i've always been curious though that creative process working with jim is this a, a one hour, a one day, a weekend? What's it like working with him on that, the sort of through it, that It wasn't process? like we sat down and, and went through it. And from what I remember, I might have spoken to him on the phone. And by the time I went to Titan Towers, they had it. I remember they, they listened to it. So you never like went to his studio or anything? No, no, no. Like okay. I did after for different projects, but I was not in his studio. And from what I recall, like I said, there was like a, a boom box and they put it in. And I remember Vince, like, he's so funny. Like, whenever there's a theme that, you know, you're using this theme, whether you like it or not, and Vince will oversell it. Like, he's headbanging. He's trying to sell he's it. He's trying. Well, yeah, he loves it. He, literally, like Vince McMahon, imagine Vince McMahon headbanging like a kid in the first row of a Metallica concert. Right. That's great. That's powerful. Um, and I, I, but I, I didn't have to sell anything. I liked it. Right. And I got, all I said was, can we get more guitars on it? And other than that, it was exciting to me because I never would have asked for that type of a song. So to get that, it did make me feel like... They get me. They get me. And they yeah. get who my demographic is supposed to be. Right. So I've always been curious, too, like, why blue? And I know that, you know, technically, if you read in, like, the psychology of colors, blue is the world's favorite color or whatever. But it's very much a big part of your Videotron, which they don't even really do anymore, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Years later, it's just your name. Right, you know? right, It's right, just right. your graphic of your name. But back then, there were highlights and a, and a montage and whatever, and it's blue. Were you consulted on that, or it's just, nope. hey, it's blue? Um the electric blue is what they decided. And once again, I think they're going for something very contemporary, very flashy. Um, they, they knew kind of my vibe. It was a flashy vibe and, and my costume and the look that I had right. and all that stuff. And I guess they just, I know at one point years later, I had some kind of an idea. Maybe I was doing the save me promos, save us. And it was green. I remember Steffi saying, stay away from green. That's DX colors. 
So maybe that blue yeah, maybe, wasn't claimed. Maybe nobody else had it. That yeah. could be the reason. But it, it once again, it did kind of fit the futuristic, contemporary, almost like a rave. You know, you would see blue lights yeah. at, a, at a club. Sure. So it, it just fit the whole gimmick. Take me through your visit to Stanford because I think we've all heard about Titan Towers and we've seen like you know little documentaries where you see people like sketching the costumes and things like that. What was your experience like? You mentioned a conveyor belt. Take me through that. Yeah. Uh, so once again, I had to go to Titan Towers to kind of do your you know your due diligence about coming into the company. And I'm not sure if everybody had to do it, but I did. And, and incorporating that was a photo shoot. Um, I remember I had to sign my autograph. Because they use were using that for like licensing and merchandise, and it was funny because at the time, in a homage to Paul Stanley, I was signing Chris Jericho, and the O would go into a star, which is how Paul Stanley used to sign his autograph for the Y would go into a star. Right. And I stopped using it very quickly, but they still have that autograph to this day on merch because that's the autograph that I signed back in 1999, and they still use it. Then I had to go meet with Kevin and Jim. Um, I believe I had to go meet with some of the writers. At the time, the bookers, and then I had to meet with Vince. And it was funny because I went to meet with Vince and I went to his office and right off the bat, he goes, geez, you've been here for five minutes. You already got movie uh, offers coming in. And he pulled out a script for uh, the Toxic, Toxic Avenger 4. And in that, move, in that movie, Toxie, who's you know the Toxic Avenger, he's traveling through time and he's bopping through time. And at one point he bops into a wrestling ring and he gets beat up by a wrestler, and it was Chris, it said in the script, Chris Jericho. Wow! So Vince pulled the script out and showed it to me, and then I never heard anything about it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I broke the ice. And then, so we were talking about you know my character and all that different stuff, and I mentioned to him that my finishing move, which was you know a, a Boston Crab, um, would be called the Y two J. Because, once again, we mentioned Y2K, and right that time when we thought Y2K, I was like, well, Y2J, it's Jericho, get it, I'm Jericho. And Vince said, um, no, no, you're wrong. Y2J is not the name of your finishing move. Y2J is now your name. Wow. And then suddenly Vince had created me. You know, it wasn't Chris Jericho anymore. It was Y2J constantly, Y2J, Y2J, Y2J. And talking with everybody else from Triple H to Stone Cold, to the rock to undertaker hello under you're the hey undertaker hello undertaker it was never mark at first sure. it was always your your name that vince had christened you right and for years all vince ever called me mostly was just y2j and it was like anytime there was a script or anything it was always y2j 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 and that was once again the, the little bit of vince's genius that he sees things differently than, than than the rest of us do and to me y2j i never thought of it calling myself y2j right it's finishing move and he was like nope 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 nope. you're y2j do you think that's because he just wanted to brand like he wanted yes. a brand bigger than just a name yes and also too it's a great nickname and sure you know talk topical. about a name that you can a topical a name that you can chant you know it's funny yeah. now because kids will ask me what does y2j mean and i'm saying go ask your parents yeah you know it's like people will say hbk like He's not a kid anymore, right. like a heartbreak man, but it just becomes, it's more than just the name. It becomes you. Right. So you, one of the things you mentioned in, in here too is that you worked with uh, Kevin Dunn to decide on a, a double blast of pyro to give yeah. your rival extra impact. Had you ever in your entire time in WCW had a conversation with anyone about pyro? No. Um, I remember they would use it once or twice and I'd always act scared. <laughs> I got a heart attack. Um, 
but that was random. They they would say, oh, you got pyro tonight, or you don't. It'd be some kind of a blast. But I remember Kevin Dunn. Yeah, he said we're gonna do double pyro for you. Um, to really make you stand out. And once again, all these things, I'd never experienced that before. Like, I'd never experienced this push of character before I even stepped into an arena. Like, all the stuff they were doing, all the preparation, like, this was the big time. Like, they were making sure that their investment was going to be rolled out at the highest of levels. Right. At least for, you know, the actual debut. You wrote in your book, too, that one of the things that always bothers you about potentially joining the WWF were some of their more provocative angles. And you even cite in your book uh, when the world's strongest man received oral pleasure from a transvestite. You thought that had no place in wrestling. So you um, had a discussion with Vince, and he said he gave you his word that you wouldn't be asked to do something you felt awkward about. All you had to do was speak up. Carry me through that conversation. Yeah, and, and, and to his credit... I never did have to. Well, there was one thing that he wanted me to do one time was actually run naked on top of the stage. And I'm like, are you insane? Like the Dudley stole me in Christian's clothes and he right. wanted us to actually be naked. And he goes, well, what am I supposed to do? You got to be naked. You're supposed to be naked. I'm like, there's kids out there. I'm not a dick dancer. Like, what do you want from me? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Well, give us nylon flesh colored bikini briefs and put one of them little, you know, digital things or whatever. Yeah. But, but other than that, he never asked me to do anything that I wasn't comfortable with doing. Um, and I remember that. I remember Mark Henry literally getting head on the show and going like, that was the one thing about the company that kind of scared me. Sure. Was those type of angles. And it was enough that I mentioned it to him. And I always laugh, like thinking back now, who's this no name 29 year old kid with, you know, some cult fan fan base that's telling me what he is and isn't going to do. I'm surprised Vince didn't want me to suck somebody's wiener on my first, <laughs> on my first night in just to show, to prove, you know, prove me wrong, pal. Well, yeah. You know? Well, in fairness, though, maybe that really helps, uh, you know, Vince respecting you because you're coming in saying, hey, here's what I will and won't do. Like, yeah, you know, and and, and like I said, I mean, I'm, I've, I was always intimidated by Vince and, and but always respectful of him and never had a problem if I didn't like something. Because right. I said earlier, I saw early on even that Titan Towers meeting, like when Vince would tell a bad joke, the roars of laughter from the sycophants. You know, or Vince said that the sky was red. People would go, of course it's red, Vince. And I never wanted to be that. You know, I wanted to just make it or break it on my own standards and volition, you know? Right. In that meeting with Vince that day in Stanford, that's when you guys first discussed that the countdown is going to end right smack dab in the middle of a promo with The Rock? Yeah. That was amazing, too. Once again, that was the genius of Vince. I couldn't believe it. Like, I just thought it was going to end as Raw started, you know? But... I'm not sure Vince thought of it right from the start, but they switched the clock around if they if he didn't to make sure that it ended right at I think it was nine o'clock. You know, Ross started at eight and it was at nine o'clock, which is the crossover, big which segment. is a big segment. And you know, I remember King and, and I remember too, like I was at my wife's dad's cabin in northern Minnesota, and being so nervous when the week the countdown was supposed to start because it was supposed to start on one week and it didn't, and I was devastated. Oh, did they change their mind or, or you know, it's not going to happen? And Russo said, no, it's next week for sure. Vince wanted it. Are you already getting paid by this point? I, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think, but still, you're like. I think my contract had started. But still, yeah. like, until it's on air, nothing, you know, wrestling. Sure, dude, you know? sure. And that next week when it finally, like, it's so nervous and it didn't debut till t- towards the end of the show. And I remember when it finally aired, I was so excited. like Relieved. This, relieved. This is it. The train's left the station. Someone's got to be at the end of that clock. Right. And um, 
when I got to the to the office and Vince told me it was going to be, you know, in the middle of a promo. Oh, that's cool. And the promo by The Rock. And I was like, wow. Because at the time, he sure. was the biggest star in the company. And I thought, like, that's just genius. I mean, what a way to debut somebody. Like, this is going to blow the roof off right off the bat. Did you meet The Rock before that day? No. Okay. Uh, wait a second. I did meet him at Owen Hart's funeral. I met most of the guys that I hadn't met before, Undertaker and Rock. It's not in this capacity. Not in this course. capacity. Not at yeah. work, no. So let's talk about the uh, the actual debut because you decide to uh, get yourself a pair of uh, Harley Davidson leather pants and a silver rave shirt that you got from a uh, hip hop shop, and you put your hair in a Gene Simmons top knot, and you say as soon as you walked out of the dressing room, like you own the place, you immediately run into Vince, who looks you up and down, and then he settled on the ridiculous hairstyle, and you said it's cheap heat, Vince. What do you remember it, about that? Yeah, um, yeah, dude. Like I said, like I, I once again. It's something I always take great pride in. Um, whenever you change, you got to change your look. If you go from heel to babyface, something's got to change. If you, you know, if you're in a tag team or a single or whatever it is, and at that point in time, it was going to WWE. I, I need a new look. Right. And not that I ever had a specific look in WCW. It was much more comedy based. You know, kimono or daishiki or whatever. And this was like raves were just really popular at the time and i found very silvery shirt and i just remember thinking i have to wear leather pants that needs to happen so i went to harley davidson shop and bought a pair of leather pants and uh i had been wearing my hair in a top knot in wcw and i thought no one else is doing it stands out as cheap heat you know right and when i walked out vince is like interesting hair and i was like it's cheap heat vince he's like indeed and then i remember saying like if you have anything that you like or don't like Please tell me. He goes, I'm going to be watching you like a hawk, is what he said. And I remember also, too, I had this really bad Billy Goat, Billy Goat chin, stupid, long ass, but it was only like six or seven hairs that made this Billy Goat's gruff. But that was that was the look, you know, and that was um, to me was because it was going to help make me stand out. Right. So let's talk about, you know, you're going over your promo that night with Russo and The Rock joins you. You know, he's probably the biggest star in the business at that point. What's that meeting like? Well, let me just go back a little bit. So for a couple of weeks beforehand, um, I remember writing that promo because really? there, okay. there was no writers at the time. When I, when I said that earlier at Titan Towers, it wasn't writers. I might have met with the bookers, but uh, there was no writers. None. So you mean there, there were as far as like maybe mapping out angles yes. and storylines, but not verbiage. Like Pat Patterson, Bruce was probably in there. The guys that sure. would book, book the shows and write TV. But as far as writing promos, right. nobody wrote your promos. You wrote okay. your own promo. And I remember lying on the floor of, of my, you know, a condo at the time and, and writing that whole, you know, Millennium Man, Jericho is going to save the WWE and, and all that sort of stuff. And writing it and rewriting it. And then, dude, like no rehearsal, no proofreading. Right. Um, just me and Russo and The Rock. And it's so crazy once again for me to even fathom this because... There's 40 writers now. There's 40 writers, and, and there's rehearsals assistants. and rehearsals, and Vince has to approve every line. Yeah. You'll get a promo back, and there'll be words crossed out because Vince didn't approve it. Right. This was a way, a promo's probably way too long at this point in time, but it's at least three or four minutes of a promo, and nobody knew what I was going to say except for Russo and, and Rock. And it was unbelievable. I remember Rock was really cool with everything, and his, his one suggestion was um, Y2J 
KY Jelly, whatever yeah. his line was about that. And then the Hooventude line, which he loved too. So I'm like, you know, you've, you've been in WCW with some guy called Hooventude. Like, who do you think you are, sort of thing. And you don't, you know, it doesn't matter what your name is. And like, he made sure that he got all his stuff in. Sure. Um, but yeah, nobody had an idea what I was going to say. Did you think at, at, the, at the time that, hey, this is rock sort of stealing my big moment? Or was it just so cool to have the association with the top guy? Didn't I, I didn't think that at all. I mean, the rock was the top guy in the business. He was the baby face. I was debuting. Right. Interrupting his promo. Dude, it didn't matter what he said or did. It was the sure. concept of, of the placement of it. To me, just blew my mind. And also, too, there's something I wanted to talk about. Uh, the night before is when I first flew in. And to get that call from Howard Finkel, because <laughs> he was the guy that would call you with your travel. And he says it like that in real, his ring he announcer does. voice. Yes. It's- Chris Jericho, this is Howard Finkel of the WWE. I'm calling you to give you your travel, and you're going to be flying to Detroit to attend Sunday Night Heat. And then the next night, you will go to Monday Night Raw in Chicago. Um, and so I flew to Detroit uh, first night to watch. Right. And it was when they were just filming Sunday Night Heat on a Sunday. And that was when they had this angle of the Pretty Mean Sisters, a.k.a. PMS. Classy. Uh, uh, Jackie and uh, Terry Runnels. That's right. Were angry at Sean Stasiak, who was called Meat. And he wore <laughs> tights that looked like uh, Calvin Klein underwear. And they were mad at him. So they put Viagra in his water bottle. And this is the angle for the show. And so when he had his match against Big Boss Man, he had a big boner, which they put a giant dildo down his pants. So he wrestled a match with a heart on. And the finish of the match was Big Boss Man taking his nightstick, whacking him in the cock. And... You what have you signed up you, for? You can't write this shit, right? No. And no. I remember, and that's I remember exactly what you just said. What yeah. have I signed up? Like this is the WWE now. Like, yeah. There's no turning back. There's no Hulk Hogan. No. There's no. Yeah. There's no. You know, Shawn Michaels was Bret Hart. It's no. a guy getting whacked in the dick. <laughs> that's hard because he had a Viagra planted because in his water bottle. Because he pissed bottle. PMS off. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and so that was it, you know. And then it flew to Chicago, and then here we are, you know, getting ready for this promo. One of the other interesting things I found in your book is the night you made your debut, Jesse the Body Ventura is backstage. Right. He's getting ready to promote SummerSlam 99, and you had had a meeting with him when you were younger. Tell us about meeting Jesse in this capacity. He was kind of uh, um, uh, flippant. You know, he was kind of like, uh, not a dick, but he, I remember he had a cigar, and uh, he was the governor of Minnesota, and he was he was walking back into Vince's turf as the conquering hero he was more powerful than vince at that point and to him that was probably a great thrill and i remember going up to him and saying hey jesse you told me you know back when i was a kid to you know to, to follow my dreams and maybe i'll make it and here i am and i'm like good job kid and have a cigar or something like that you know vote for vote for me but i remember just thinking that was very very cool full circle like here's jesse ventura on my first night in the WWE, and i remember being you know once again 18 19 years old hanging out with him asking him how do you get to the wwe sure and here i am all these years later and you know he's the governor at this point let's talk about your first night you know this is your first night in the locker room as sort of one of the boys here uh you're the new guy you've been there before as a visitor you had sort of a cold reception What's the wrestler etiquette like in 99? Do you go around and introduce yourself and shake everyone's hand and speak? Yeah, I, mean, I think I did. And, and, and most people were friends. I knew a couple guys. Like I knew JBL uh, from Japan and Mick Foley. I knew him. 
But I don't remember really having a lot of interaction with the guys because I didn't realize that there was a target on my back. I didn't realize how much heat I had just by proxy of me being there because those guys knew that I had gotten a, a good deal. Sure. You know, and they were probably not making anything close. I mean, I'm sure Bob Hawley wasn't making 450 grand a year guaranteed at that point in time. And guys like that could make or break you because, you know, they if that locker room heat starts with those guys, top guys are pretty much minding their own business. It's the mid-level guys that will start the shit. Um, but I came in there so oblivious to that. And I remember, I mean, my, 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 my second weekend, I did a promo where I called The Undertaker boring you know, on live TV. And I got so much heat behind the scenes and didn't realize it. Like, who the fuck is this guy to call? From him or from those underneath from guys? From everybody. Okay. Undertaker never said a word. Sure. And the worst part was he had just cut a really boring promo. We laugh about it to this day. It was the one where Big Show's in the desert and he's got a motorcycle on his back and he found a scorpion. It was like, oh my gosh, it was so boring. And I go out there and go, hey, Undertaker, you're, you're so boring. They should call you, I can't remember what it was, not, not Undertaker, you're... Whatever some word for boring that kind of matches Undertaker, you're like the boring taker, and um, like what the hell was I thinking? But to me, I came in there as this character who felt that the WWE was boring, right? That the whole locker room sucked as a heel, and I'm the guy who's going to save. Sure, them. but the guys in the locker room listened to my promos and took it as reality, like that the like, real person. Yeah, like, like and that was not me. I was just yeah. coming and doing. Your what, job. What I was basically told to do. And, yeah. and, you know, the wrestling war, I'll say it again, was real. Yeah. The money was real. And for me to go there by myself, I had no friends. Um, you know, I knew guys, but all my guys were still back in WCW. They didn't come in for six months later or whatever it was, you know, when Dean and Eddie and those guys came in. So it was really strange. And looking back now, no wonder I had nuclear heat. Sure. But I was just doing what I thought was expected of me. Right. And I'm respectful of everybody backstage, but out there, I was this guy who was convinced that he was going to save the WWE. Sure. So you show up to the building, you find the dressing room, you get situated, you say your hellos. You know, usually the call time is back then, what, one o'clock, two o'clock? One o'clock or two like o'clock, yeah. So how are you killing time the rest of the day? You're going over your promo a little bit with yeah, Vince Yeah, going and over Rock. the promo with, with Vince Russo and Rock. And then. Um, you know, just getting ready. I remember I had that meeting with Vince where he saw my hair and met the governor. And I think the, the rest of it was just normal stuff. I don't recall really doing anything special other than sitting by myself with, 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 with Vince Russo and The Rock and then Rock throwing in his lines. Had you already sort of figured out how you were going to travel? A lot of the guys travel together and sort of drive Yeah, I, I didn't know anybody. Sure. So um, I remember we flew from Detroit to Chicago and I got an upgrade that I didn't use. Because in those days, you don't use, you, you don't sit in first heel. class. Yeah. You give it to somebody else. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to kiss anybody's ass. I'm just not going to take it. You've been upgraded. No, thanks. I'll sit in middle seat D or Which whatever it was. Never happened in the history of airline That's travel. right. That's yeah. right. And on top of that, it was just, uh, I remember also to. Let me ask on that. Do you think you were upgraded as a test, do you think somebody else had the upgrade and then said, "You know, hey, you what, know what, dude, gonna, it wouldn't surprise me." Just to see, like, it is this new kid going to take but, it? But I, we had been through that in WCW as well. You sure, know, you just didn't take those upgrades. You know, right. if Arn Anderson's sitting in the back and you know, You're not I, remember, up I, yeah. I remember Blue Meanie tells a great story. Told my podcast when that happened to him, and he took the upgrade. And I remember just seeing the death stares and Mick Foley walking by, going, 
Oh, meanie. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, who, who knows, right? right? But I remember also, too, there was not a rehearsal for my entrance, which is another thing that's very strange. But I had seen um, Tron the video. Tron video. And whether they showed it to me early in the day or whether I saw it in the truck, Kevin Dunn was very instrumental. And he and I are, are, are pretty tight to this day. He was very much behind this character and this reveal and this whole thing. And whether he knew who I was or not, he sure loved the idea sure. and what they were doing with it. I mean, they they made me three times bigger of a star in one night than WCW in three years, just by the way that they, the that they put it together, the presentation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I but I don't believe that I had seen it with my own two eyes on that screen, just in the truck. Wow. So when you're actually getting ready for the day, you know, you're, you're dressed, you're ready to go. You got your promo. Where are you watching the show? Are you watching it with the rest of the guys in catering? Yeah, they always have a, they always have like a monitor set up in catering or, or now it's kind of set up kind of backstage somewhere. So I don't recall if it was in catering or backstage, but watching the show, but not re like I was really nervous. Sure. Um, and going over the promo in my head over and over. Cause I knew like if I hit a home run, I'm made. If I don't, if I hit a double or a single, I might not get another shot because right. I, you know, once again, I, I mean, I'd been in the business for nine years at that point. I knew how it worked. And, 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 uh, nine year overnight. That's situation. right. So it's not like I was just some rookie. Like right. I was a rookie to WWE, but I was a hardcore seasoned vet to the business at that point in time. So I knew this was my chance. And I also knew like, it didn't matter what my accolades were outside of WWE. It didn't matter. All that mattered. I, I, I picked up very quickly that, all Vince knew or cared about was WWE, and and, and as it should be. Sure, he, he you know he had people whose watch job was stuff. to watch the other stuff, yeah. and that's how he probably heard about me in the first place. But as far as actually watched one of my matches or seen one of my promos, I doubt it. So this is my chance to impress basically the audience of one yeah. that I'm out there to to work for. So I was very much going through it and making sure I was ready and getting into space. So I wasn't really hanging out with anybody or watching the show at all. I knew when my segment was coming up, I knew what I had to do and I was focused on that. When you're talking about going over your promo, of course these days everybody has a script. You just said you were going over it in your head. Did you write it out ever? Yes. Okay. So I, I had written wrote, written the whole thing out. So backstage that day, do you have it in your hand? Probably. Okay. I probably memorized it at that point. Like I said, I wrote it a couple of weeks beforehand. Um, but still, I mean. Just to me, it makes me wonder, like, because we've heard, and this is probably just internet legend bullshit, but we've heard, like, DDP is notorious, according to the legend, for scripting out absolutely true. everything. That's true. And that guys like The Undertaker would be like, what the f*** is That's this? That's true. So you might not want to be seen as the guy on your first day in who's, like, pouring yeah, over and, his and, notes. and that. You know, that's something that I was probably aware of. And it's so funny because now guys are constantly walking around with their Not scripts. Every day. But back then there was no. Right. There was none of that. All that stuff was like. Call it in the ring, kid. You know, Austin 316. Sure. On the fly. So um, I might have had it. I think I had, might have had it. It might have been typed out by Russo and maybe Bill Banks, who's that's whose job was. And then, like I said, Rock changed a lot of it and added some stuff. Not not a line share, but he added his lines and added, you know, and, and we sat down and went through kind of the the back and forth element of it. Do you call anybody beforehand? Are you calling mom or the wife or anybody? Or you know, I mean, it's a big well, moment. They, in your they, life. Yeah, like they all knew I was there. Sure. Um, nobody knew, you know, outside of the inner circle. But yeah, everyone was watching. You know, no no one was there with me, nor would I want anyone to be there with me. But everyone was watching. So you say a little prayer before you go out. Say it a little goes prayer. Well. Go out there, and I remember just standing there, 
as that countdown is because when the show started jr and the king were like and the countdown ends tonight you know and the, throughout the show from what i recall there was a little countdown at the bottom of the screen or they kept flashing back to it to see where it was right and here you go rock goes out to do his promo and right in the middle of his promo boom 10 9 and people start going crazy and it's funny i didn't think anybody would know who i was but i'd say at least 50 percent of the audience knew that it was me yeah knew it yeah and when that giant jericho i posted a picture on instagram from that night i'm about you know one inch tall as i'm holding my fingers up and the tron is like 100 feet tall yeah and when jericho flashed the reaction was insane it it was one of the biggest reactions i've ever received because half the people knew it was me the other half were excited that was me and the other half of those three halves had no idea who i was but were caught up in the moment of like this is big it's a big deal we might have heard this jericho we don't know who this is but Wow, this is a new guy. And that era of the Monday Night Wars was very much on the big moments. Yes. The big surprises. Yes. Yeah, a match was good, but a big surprise was better. Yes, and that was a huge reveal. Yeah. And because, you know, there's people that always say, you know, it could have been the gobbledygooker. Right. Which was a big reveal of a countdown. They had like a giant turkey guy came out of an egg. This was not that. This was the opposite of something very cool, very exciting. And I had seen Michael Jackson in 1993 uh, in Mexico City. And he, he came up out of the ground with his back to the crowd and literally stood there for about three minutes. Just stood with his back to the crowd, not moving. And I remember thinking, like, because the crowd cheers and then they go down and then they come back up yep. and, then they get, and then they just get bigger and bigger. And I remember thinking, like, that's what poise to, to, to sit there and know they'll come back. They'll come back. And just everybody's freaking out there's there's something vince taught me years ago that when you do a big move you want to sell it and take time so that people can hit their buddy and go did you see that that? yeah and that's what i wanted to people just to to, no pun intended drink in the moment drink it in and for me just to stand there and listen and that's where the kind of the, the the arms came from with my back to the crowd that's michael jackson completely taken from him he had his arms out and the if he might have at one point put one arm out like michael jackson does right absolutely. and that, that was after like two minutes of nothing whoosh, yeah there's the arm and then ah, just, just holds it yes and then another one so it was a, a version of that not sure. the exact one right but you know and and that was where i got that from was from him is that the biggest moment in your career at that moment yeah oh by far by far by far by far by far not a match too isn't that no, crazy no. just walking and, and that's when like i say to this day you know matches don't matter it's moments right. and connection with the audience and, and buzz and um you know turn around and there it is Jericho man you know and um just cut this promo on the rock and it's 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 a pretty good promo but it's way too long right when I look back on it now I don't like it I wouldn't have done it that way but you know at 28 years old or or whatever I was that that's where I was at the time and um I remember when rock started saying his lines I was selling it but almost selling it comedically cartoonish cartoonish like old Jericho would yeah because I still didn't know who I was there. And you look back on it now, and it looks like Popeye the Sailor Man face, like like blowing my cheeks out and, and like, why, why I oughta yeah. type thing. And I remember when I came back, everyone, of course, congratulated me and some of the stuff, but Vince didn't really say anything. But then online, later on that week, I heard that Vince did not like my reactions and thought I was too cartoony. And I was like, that's peculiar because he said he was going to watch me like a hawk. And tell me if I did anything wrong, but yet didn't say a word 
but had already been mad at my performance right off the bat. Do you think Vince wanted to see it play out? Like, you know, maybe maybe it's too soon to make a decision, and that's the reason he didn't say anything? Or do you think he knew right then, that sucked, but I'm just not going to tell him? I think in his mind, or people telling him, that my reaction was out of line and not good. Maybe the promo was too long. I know how he thinks. Sure. I would say he probably didn't like it and probably made up his mind right then and there where I was slotted. Because if you look what I did after that night, it was a downward spiral. Yeah. They were doing you know, stuff with Fink on the first SmackDown and stuff with Fink, not top guy stuff. Not top guy stuff, you know, yeah. not not slotted with The Rock. I had a match with Rock that wasn't good. Yeah. They put me with Curtis Hughes. Um, who I just saw in Atlanta for the first time in 20 years. but um, And also on top of that, too, I, I think that when you, when, you know, like I said, like I look back on it, I really didn't hit the home run that I should have. Like I said, the promo was good, but it was too long and those faces were bad. But if what also people forget, too, is later on that night, I was involved in a match. I did a run-in, I believe, on Billy Gunn because he was feuding with The Rock. And I think Rock gave me a rock bottom or something like that. It was uh, Rock versus Big Show. You make another appearance. You distracted the Rock. Billy Gunn attacks him. Okay. And that set up SummerSlam. Right. So, you know, once again, I interrupt the Rock. And then later on in the show, I'm a diversion for Billy Gunn and Rock, which you would think maybe it should have been me and Rock at SummerSlam right off the bat. But it wasn't, you know. Talk to me about uh, the pairing of. Howard Fink. Well, before we do that, let me mention the the show. Your debut got a six point five three rating, mm. so we could sit here and say, "Oh, this, that." Six point five three, pretty legit. That's crazy, man. Think about that. Can you imagine if somebody got a six point three in this Today? day and age? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, that's somewhere around six million people, six and a half million people. Double the audience on Double. now. I mean, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And when I came back, I got calls from everybody. Everybody was so excited. So everyone was so happy. And people I hadn't heard from from years, all my guys that were in WCW actually were watching it there. And Bischoff made them turn the channel. <laughs> Dean told me that. What, the, what are you watching fun. that shit for? Um, but I remember Dean and Eddie saying, if we felt like you had broke out of prison and we were watching you through the prison walls, you know, run away type thing. Uh, SummerSlam 99, not long after you debuted, you're paired with the ring announcer, Howard Finkel. He kind of becomes like your new Ralphus. What do you think about, doesn't it feel like, shit, this is a retread of what I was doing before? Well, I mean, the thing is, and, and I don't want to get too in, involved into after that. We can do, do that for the next episode. But, you know, Russo was a big fan of my comedic Jericho. And if you look at the stuff that I did around that time with Finkel being the new Ralphus and kind of having a heater in Curtis Hughes and I was, you know, hiding in a shark cage from Ken Shamrock. It was very hodgepodge wearing right. a suit of armor to the ring, which I was like, you, you can't even put this on. They had to change it to ho hockey equipment because Russo wanted me to wear a, a nice suit of armor. And it's like you put it on and it like cuts you in two. Like you can't wear it. So he was a big fan of that. And Vince was not. And there was some real kind of, I think, battles between the two of them. And, and when Russo left only a few months later, and I was really stranded in the water after that because Russo had a vision for me and Vince didn't share it. And when Russo left, I was kind of just thrown, you know, to the side, so to speak. But that night in Chicago, though, it's so funny because I get so many tweets and compliments and comments about it to this day of being one of the best 
debuts of all time. Sure. You know, and it's cool to me that I've had that memory in so many people's minds as kids, as teenagers, as adults, whatever it was that, you know, one of the iconic moments, I think, in raw history was the debut of Jericho. Well, the big thing, you know, you said you got a lot of calls from everybody else. You read a few days later that Vince maybe didn't love it. What did you think? Did it live up to your expectations? I remember thinking, like, I thought that did really good. You thought you nailed it. I thought I nailed it. You know, and, and when I heard about the cartoon faces, I was like, what, really? That's just kind of how I act. But that's not how you act in the WWE. Looking back on it now, like I said, it's too long. The faces make me cringe. But for a 28-year-old kid coming into this giant situation with no allies and hitting the ground running, I mean, you put me in a position to either succeed or fail big time. And I think it succeeded. You know, it might not have succeeded in the boss's eyes, but I don't know what I could have done at that time because, like I said, there was a big target on me. It took me about six months to really start making my name there with everybody. Right. But I think at the time it went pretty freaking good man because that was a lot of pressure and it was a huge spotlight going toe-to-toe with the best talker possibly of all time and the thing about the rock is he's not going to slow down he will steamroll you and eat you alive if you don't keep up right i didn't know that i just knew what my job was to do and it once once again one of my greatest rivals is the rock and i'm one of the only guys that could stand toe-to-toe with him on promos was me and it you know, it took a while for us to get it into gear, but I think that was a good indication first night in that you might have found somebody that can, you know, live up to this guy. Yeah, I was a huge, you know, the WCW version of your character at the end was my absolute favorite. I had the Monday Night Jericho shirt and the whole deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what I was sort of had an expectation for. So I didn't take the facials the wrong way. But the two things all these years later that I remember most without even rewatching it is the big reveal and the arms out and the whole deal. And then the, it doesn't matter what your name is. And I, like you assumed, well, that means they're fixing to start working together. So you've got to feel like I nailed it. I'm going to get to do something with the rock. Little do we know two months later, Russo's out of there. Everything looks totally different. How'd you celebrate that night? Did you go to the hotel bar with some of the, some of your new friends? I, I don't remember, but I remember we had to do SmackDown or, or uh, another raw taping the next day in Milwaukee. Okay. I used to do two tapings and that's when I did the big promo, uh, calling the undertaker boring. Right. And I remember afterwards, Shawn Michaels saying to me, you know, um, next time you might want to not call the biggest legend, uh, and the greatest, you know, big man of all time, boring. No, I said, next time you might not want to call one of the greatest characters and one of the best performers and the most respected guy in the locker room boring on live TV. <laughs> That's what Sean said. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. So, yeah, like I said, I, I kind of dug some holes right off the bat there. But, uh, you know, it's all part of the process. And had I not had those nine years of experience, I wouldn't have lasted long in WWE. Really? I don't think so. I don't think so, because um, it was that experience and that knowledge of how to get over. I, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I will get over because I do it all the time. If I just came in and you see it all the time, guys come in from NXT and they get a big push. And they just drift away right? because they don't know how to get over. And it's not waiting for the booker to give you the push. You have to take it and make it happen. So, um, like I said, it just just all the backlash towards me internally i did not expect it you know and it probably started that night but here we are 19 years later and like i said people call it one of the greatest moments of all time and to me like i said it is a pretty cool 
entrance to that company. And I can't think of too many guys who had as good of a of an entrance or as good of a buildup as as the, as the Y2J character. I can't think of any that had a bigger debut. Yeah, maybe. I know it's weird for you to say because you don't want yeah, to be that but I mean, guy, but realistically, who had a bigger one I mean, I mean, maybe, in that era? Maybe the original Undertaker entrance, but around that era, I mean, Mankind had some cool vignettes, but and it's something they don't do much anymore. Is have those original vignettes. Undertaker though? If you remember, it was just a shadow figure on Survivor Series. Okay, yeah. And then Brother Love walked him out. I mean, he just squeeze squashed a bunch of guys, but still, there wasn't this anticipation and a big reveal. No, there wasn't. And then if you look, when I came back in 07, we did the Save Us promos. Yeah. yeah. Came back in 12. It was the end of the world as you know it. Um, so I, I, I like doing those, you know, now it's just kind of just an appearance. You just appear it's, it's a surprise, but they don't do those vignettes like they used to. Um, and they should, because that was always something when I was a kid, Saturday morning, you would see, you know, uh, Mr. Perfect, Mr. Perfect, throw, yeah, throwing yeah. a football and catching his own football. Like, yeah. I want to see this guy. Who is this guy? Right. And you would like them or not like them before, a you, ever before you ever saw them. Yeah. And now you just see, you know, authors of pain. What is an author of pain? I don't know what that is. Right. I don't know who they are. And they show up and they work a couple times and they're not all that impressive and they're gone. You know, and I said, oh, the NXT, they were the team. I didn't, I don't watch NXT. So I don't see any of that stuff. I just see what I see on WWE and that you need to have that build up. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to have it. But if you look once again, I didn't wait for anybody to give it to me. I made it happen. Yeah. I came up with the ideas. I came up with the creative. And then Vince took that and made it even better. If you can do that on a regular basis, you'll be a much bigger star in the WWE because getting handed the plum angles, it's very hard because there's only a few. You have to think of your own stuff and then have the 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 focus to carry it through in fairness don't you think there was a little bit of luck involved that kevin dunn liked the idea that jim yes. johnston nailed the music that you know the y2j thing well, some of this was just the stars aligning too was it not it was and, and vince was behind it you know vince if you remember it was his idea to call me y2j right it was his idea to have me interrupt the rock and you know he didn't fire me when he could have right off the bat. He kept me around. And then I think it took me eight years to live up to the potential that he saw in me. But once I got it, now here I am, you know, one of one of his generals, which is fine. I mean, it takes time. Sure. You know, um, but I, I think, though, like you said, Kevin's input, Jim's input, Russo's input. You know, had it been four months later when Russo was gone. I might, looked a lot different. I might never even got into WWE. So it's, it's all of these things happen the way they're supposed to happen. So. Like I said, as, 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 as we finish up here, it was uh, a really cool time. Uh, it's much better now than it was then because it was a scary time, too, to go through all of that. And if I would have known what was coming over the next six months, I might have run away screaming. Right. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it gave me more respect amongst those guys. And um, it's going to be fun to tell that story on another installment of Conrad and Chris. <laughs> I think it's Chris and Conrad. Chris and Conrad, uh, you, you yeah. You top billing. Yeah, but I'm, I'm proud of it. And uh, like I said, to this day, uh, people still call me Y2J, man. And that's that's all you can ask for. It's a long-standing relationship with my friends, my fans. And I think when you grow up with somebody, it makes you want to... Sort of, like I, I use Metallica as an example. I got into Metallica when I was 14 Lars was 19. So I've grown up with this guy and we're right. friends. And when Metallica puts out a record or goes on tour, I feel it more because sure. I'm more in tune with them because they're my band. Right. You know, my age group, my journey is mirrored them. 
And I think it's the same with Chris Jericho. There's a lot of people after 19 years in WWE, and you mentioned even WCW, that grew up with Chris Jericho. Absolutely. When they see me, they're like, oh my gosh, I grew up with you. And it just makes it that much sweeter when you see Jericho do something else. Absolutely. And it makes it sweet when you get a call. Hey, man, I'm coming to town. Do you want to come talk? (laughs) That's right, man. As a wrestling fan, this was a cool deal, man. I appreciate you inviting me over. And uh, I'm going to talk to Jim Johnson this weekend and to tell him the story of your theme song and go through the creative please process. Please do and let me know what he says. And like I said, and please thank him. Uh, and not just for me, on behalf of all the guys for having that genius of being able to tap into the personality of the character and nailing it time and time again. And like I said, that's part of, of Jericho's legacy and part of my success is that theme song. So please tell him I said thank you. We'll do it. And you can, uh, I'll get you a pass. You can watch it on the road. I know you can't be at Starcast, but <laughs> I'll be in Kansas we'll get City. You a pass it out. on fight. Thank you, dude. Thanks again to Conrad Thompson for making a special appearance here on Talk is Jericho in his hometown of Huntsville, Alabama. You can catch him every week on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff and What Happened When with Tony Schiavone. And you can see him this weekend at StarCast. Don't forget StarCast.com. And you can see all that on the Fight Network as well. Go check that out. Uh, and come check out some live podcast events at Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. Uh, book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Come hang with me and this amazing lineup of talent when we set sail on October 27th. Everything included in the booking price, including food, all the live podcasts, stand-up comedy, meet and greets, rock shows, wrestling matches. Only thing you pay for are alcohol and gambling. Main event, big main event, Alpha Club versus Bullet Club. It's the Bucks of Jericho, or is it Y2 Jackson? Matching up against Cody Rhodes, Kenny Omega, and uh, Marty Skrull. It's going to be huge. You can't see it anywhere else. Only here on the Jericho Cruise. And, of course, Impact versus Ring of Honor. Sammy Callahan versus Marty Skrull. LAX versus the Young Bucks. John Morrison is coming in. He's taking on the whole Bullet Club. He's challenging the Bullet Club. Uh, what's going to happen there? Live talk is Jericho. Rick and Dragon Steamboat. Live talk is Jericho. Remembering Eddie Guerrero with Conan and Rey Mysterio. Live talk is Jericho with the entire Bullet Club. Live talk is Jericho with Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. Mick Foley doing his 20 years of hell stand-up show talking all about that fateful night uh, at the Hell in the Cell. Uh, don't forget about Killing the Town versus Keeping It 100, Conan versus Don Callis, Disco Inferno versus Paul Lazenby, and the Sea of Honor Tournament. First round has been announced. Lethal versus Whitmer, Daniels versus Delirious, Skrull versus Titus, Silas Young versus Gordon, Mark Briscoe versus Ferrara, Adam Page versus Kazarian, Chiba versus Beer City Bruiser, and Jay Briscoe versus Kenny King. And of course, live music. Fozzie will be playing three times. Corey Taylor of Slipknot and Stone Sour. Stone Sour currently on tour with Ozzy Osbourne. Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons. King, the Stir, who is with us right now on tour. They're a kick-ass rock and roll band. Dave Spivak Project will be there. Uh, you've heard him and his music right here on Talk is Jericho. The Darlings of Rock and Roll, the Cherry Bombs. Uh, Shoot to Thrill, the world's greatest ACDC cover band, female. Uh, Blizzard of Ozzy, world's best Ozzy Osbourne cover band, male. Uh, Beyond the Darkness will be scaring the pants off you. The unprofessional wrestling uh, show with Marty DeRosa and Colt Cabana. Uh, Busted Open Radio will be there. Live comedy from Brad Williams, Craig Gass, Ron Funches, the Impractical Joker, Sal and Q. So much stuff going on. SoCal Val will be there. Noel Foley will be there. Uh, Mandy Leon, Kelly Klein, Sumi Sakai just announced this week. Brandy Rhodes, I got nothing else for you. If that's not enough, to make you book a cabin on this cruise then I don't know what else is ChrisJerichoCruise.com is the uh, address to go to we are less than 100 cabins away book your cabin now and make history less than 100 cabins away from selling out so be a part of the very first inaugural voyage of Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at ChrisJerichoCruise.com alright have a great weekend and in the meantime and in between time coming up next Wednesday I've been waiting to have them for a long time ever since this podcast started one of my favorite bands of all time Halloween 
will be here. I got my name from the first Halloween record walls of Jericho, and I will be talking to them as they get ready for their first U.S. tour in ages. Halloween will be here. Uh, so have a great weekend in the meantime and in between time. Stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. A big yeah, boy. Y2J, baby.